You're listening to the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast, the official podcast of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. We're bringing you the very best from the APSF newsletter and website, as well as the latest information in perioperative patient safety. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast. My name is Allie Bechtel, and I'm your host. Thank you for joining us for another show. Last week, we talked about the next patient safety movement, sustainable healthcare, with Matthew Meyer and Jonathan McBride. I hope that you've had a chance to check out their letter to the editor in the June 2022 APSF newsletter. Before we dive into the episode today, we'd like to recognize Fresenius Kabi, a major corporate supporter of APSF. Fresenius Kabi has generously provided unrestricted support to further our vision that no one shall be harmed by anesthesia care. Thank you, Fresenius Kabi. We wouldn't be able to do all that we do without you. We are once again turning our attention to a letter to the editor called Sustainable Healthcare Must Be the Next Patient Safety Movement by Jonathan McBride and Matthew Meyer. To follow along with us, head over to APSF.org and click on the newsletter heading. First one down is the current issue. Then scroll down until you get to the letters to the editor section and click on our featured article today. I will include a link in the show notes as well. We have more of my conversation with Meyer and McBride. Today, we are talking about steps that anesthesia professionals can take to keep patients safe and move towards a more sustainable healthcare system. Check out the articles listed in the show notes for more information on this important topic as well. Here we go. So one thing that would be helpful is maybe if we just work through some like examples too, because I think a lot of times for anesthesia patient safety considerations, we talk about safe monitoring practices, having available equipment and all of that stuff. And so what does it look like if we can provide the safest patient care for our patients requiring anesthesia, but also keeping the environmental concerns in mind? So I think one clinical example that, you know, you know, so one clinical example that comes to mind specifically is like related to the respiratory system. So, you know, that's something that we spend as uh, you know, anesthesia professionals, we spend a lot of time focusing upon breathing and ventilating and really thinking about that system. We know that as the world gets hotter, as pollen counts get higher, as air pollution, you know, becomes thicker, we're going to see more respiratory concerns. And so, and and that's exacerbations of chronic conditions. And it's also, you know, it's also the spread of more acuity in those chronic conditions and also newer um, newer conditions like asthma in populations that generally tend to be less well off. You know, and so and so, you know, for example, you know, like by us reducing our reliance upon you know, desflurane, you know, is, is something that's going to come up over and over in this topic. You know, desflurane has a, uh, a, a green a greenhouse gas potential of about 3,700 times that of carbon dioxide. 
It's also about 90 times that of methane, which is usually held up as um, an item, a chemical that's particularly bad for climate change. When we reduce our usage of that, you know, we're not solving the problem of climate change by no means, but we are making one really important step forward. And this is an incredibly complex problem. And it's a complex problem that's affecting everyone throughout, you know, throughout the globe. And so what we're talking about is something I think as anesthesiologists we're, and, and anesthesia professionals are really good at, which is we're talking about risk mitigation. You know, these are large numbers and small impacts, but over large numbers. And so when we think in this way, we realize that like, you know, perhaps it's not the next patient I'm doing, you know, that's on my list, that's going to be better off because of the maneuvers I've made to reduce my impact. But maybe it's someone's, you know, maybe it's your patient in New Zealand, you know, maybe it's someone's patient in, you know, rural anywhere. I don't know, but I know that when I make these choices to be more sustainable, I am having a positive impact upon the public health in the long term. And I hope that when other people make choices, they're reciprocating and that help that will improve my patient's health. Is this something we should be screening for in our preoperative clinics, like the impact of climate change on our patients' respiratory symptoms coming into the OR for surgery? That's that's an interesting question. It's it's something we should start talking about. I think in terms of personalizing the idea of climate change having an impact upon health, you know, and this is this is more of a public health intervention, but I think it's something we should talk about. Potentially, if you have an asthmat- a, a very severe asthmatic and the pollen count and the humidity is up high and it's a hot day and they're coming from you know, Los Angeles, like maybe, maybe you do have to think about that sort of similarly as do you think about an upper respiratory illness. Does it result in a case cancellation? I don't know. But I think it's something that deserves to be looked at because as we look at the trends, as we look at the best available client science, which is very good, if we don't get a handle on this, these problems are going to get worse. And likely they're going to get worse even if we get a handle on it before they get better. So what are the concrete steps? And you outlined some of these in the article too, but it'll be good to to talk about them. But what are the steps that anesthesia professionals can do right now, maybe not for every patient, but considerations that they can take if they want to move towards a more sustainable uh, healthcare system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first one, we've already sort of alluded to it, but is is to eliminate desflurane um, and eliminate nitrous oxide. Um, those are uh, two just most potent sort of global warming potential gases that we have. Um, and then, you know, in addition to sort of avoiding those two agents, I would say to lower the flows on your fresh anesthetic gases as much as clinically possible. Um, um, you know, re- I mean, even just moving down from two liters to one liter can obviously have your your influence without much of a clinical impact. Um, other things that we we think about sort of in this field is so much of the emissions comes from those volatile anesthetic gases. So using TIVA um, when possible. And then, you know, always, of course, prioritizing patient safety, but, you know, not over-preparing for cases like we talked about, not treating every patient we see, like they're going to be the sickest patient we'll see that day, just making sure, you know, that you have everything you need and and everything you might need second, but not just over-preparing and opening everything that has to, like we talked about those, you know, those trash bags, you know, being being thrown out at the end. Um, and each of those small decisions really adds up and can really can really reduce the amount of uh, you know of emissions per case. 
the other thing I'd add is, you know, is um, I, I think one thing we can do now is start educating people about this. Um, uh, I think there's huge opportunity, particularly, you know, all of, uh, many of my peers in medical school are tuned in to climate change, I think, more than, than, you know, maybe previous generations of providers. And we want to hear about this and we, we want to change our practices. So um, that, that's something I'm eager, eager to see is sort of the growth of that. Uh, when you said that you studied climate change in medical school, I was trying to think back. I do not think that course existed when I was in medical school. So that is a really big step forward too on the education front. And and that's and and that's absolutely true. I mean, we we had an editorial, we the collective, we it was published um, in 200, 200 plus medical journals last summer, and it called climate change the greatest threat to public health of our century. And this is during a global pandemic. We're still saying, uh, feel comfortable with 200 um, medical journals saying climate change is the process we need to pay attention to as a population. We say that, yet, you know, if you have a class on climate change or one lecture on climate change, you're probably doing better than the average medical student still at this point. And, and that's, that's something that's got to change. You know, we have to start addressing this, you know, as though... It, with the respect that it deserves. So, I mean, again, as to emphasis here, emphasize $13 million was spent on, NIH spent $13 million on climate change research and health last year in 2021. $7 billion was spent on cancer research. So just the parity, I mean, we should definitely spend money on cancer research, but if we're calling this the greatest threat to public health, we really need to, you know, up our game and, and incorporate it in more facets of our clinical world and our research world. And regarding to one other thing that anesthesiologists can do at this point, and this takes us again out of the OR, which I think is where anesthesiologists sometimes function best. So many of the leaders in the global um, healthcare sustainability world are anesthesiologists. You get hooked by this concept of desflurane and nitrous oxide and being like, wow, by literally making a simple clinical choice that probably has almost no impact on my patients. Sometimes it's probably better for my patients. I can reduce my personal work footprint and the footprint of my health system in a major way. I can also save the money usually by getting rid of desflurane. This allows anesthesiologists to transition into a leadership role in health systems. And I think there's a real growth opportunity for anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists, the whole practice to, to lead and to show the importance of sustainability and that sustainability isn't isn't a cost for our health system. It actually can be, you know, cost neutral or actually beneficial and cost saving. And that allows anesthetists, anesthesia professionals to really spread out and, you know, utilize some of their system skills that they develop clinically across the entire health system enterprise and help bring sustainability outside of just the operating room and really, you know, embed it into entire strategic plans for health systems. And that sounds like a really good way to make a really big impact as well. Absolutely. Now you mentioned the using the consideration for using total intravenous anesthetics as a way to uh, reduce the carbon footprint. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think it's a really interesting topic, and I ha I do know some folks who have moved over to Tevas for almost all of their relatively short general anesthetic cases as a way to avoid volatile anesthetics completely. But then I know a lot of people who 
use Tiva for just other, the other indications that anesthesia professionals are used to. Um, so I just was wondering if you could touch on that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, you know, talking about sort of where the relative, you know, uh, emissions come from in, in an anesthetic case, the, um, you know, by agent, the, the heavy hitters are those volatile anesthetics. So um, whereas you compare to sort of, we talked about the global warming potential of desforin being something like, you know, 3,400, I think. Um, when you look at the, you know, global warming potential of propofol, most of that comes from, you know, the actual manufacturing of it. And it's, it's just such a small fraction compared to that. It's probably going to be, I, I don't have the exact number, but it's, it's much, much smaller. So, um, we see Tiva there as an opportunity to avoid those really potent, you know, greenhouse gas gases and, and really reduce your waste. So by using a, a preferentially using a Tiva. Um, and, and, you know, planning a safe total intravenous anesthetic and, and using that as, a, as an alternative, you can just avoid a lot of those, um, you know, really, really potent greenhouse gases. And we see that as a big opportunity when done safely. And, and it's also to emphasize, like, this is one of those situations where the sustainable choice might actually be the better clinical choice, too. There is a pretty good signal in the literature that um, oncologic patients have better outcomes when they have total intra- propofol as opposed to volatile anesthetics. So in this situation, you, you especially in that patient population, you, it's probably better for them to use the more sustainable choice. And and I want to also sort of um, discuss what the the counter argument to propofol is, and just sort of you know give a different perspective on it. A lot of times people talk about propofol and they say what. But whatever's left over enters into our wastewater stream, which is true. And there's studies that show that a lot of times we're not very good at estimating the amount of propofol we need, and we throw out a lot of it. You know, and and this is you know here we've got you know 100 cc, so a, um, a gram of propofol we hang up for a case that goes 30 minutes. We use 300 of it, and the rest of it goes in the garbage. This is one of those moments where we have to really you know again customize our practice for the patient that's sitting in front of us. And, and I think that if we're intentional with our use of propofol, then you eliminate that argument against it, which is that we just throw out so much of it. And, and we do, that studies are pretty good. So, so I think this is where you've got to blend two different concepts. The first one being, you know, switch from volatile anesthetics when possible to, total, to propofol based. And then also, you know, really think about the amount of propofol that you need. Um, there's techniques throughout the world, some of them not available in the U.S., um, such as target-controlled infusion pumps that really sort of help you get through some of those problems that we face here. For anesthesia trainees coming up, so Jonathan, like yourself, there's going to be a huge requirements for your time and energy and focus during anesthesia training. But what do you see as the role or the best way that anesthesia trainees can be involved in uh, creating a sustainable healthcare uh, environment while also balancing all of the challenges of anesthesia training? That's a good question. Um, I'm sure I'll have different thoughts on that after I get started. But, you know, I guess right now, I think trainees are, are in an interesting situation. So I guess my experience as a medical student is a lot of the environmental initiatives at the University of Michigan Medical School and, and some of them even at Michigan Medicine came from the trainees because this is something we want. Um, and I guess I would just encourage trainees to, you know, never, of course, like we're talking about, you never sacrifice patient safety or your clinical ex- ex- excellence. 
But, you know, you do have to advocate for this and, and talk to your program administrators, ask for education. We're also the like, we're also the perfect audience for this, right? If we're taught sustainable healthcare or sustainable anesthesiology, right? That's such a multiplier for all the cases we do going forward. So the, the potential at, of intervening at the trainee level is just such an, an impact multiplier throughout our entire careers. If, if every case I do is more sustainable than the average, you know, anesthesia care providers case over the last 10 years, um, I, you know, we've made a big impact there. So um, I guess, I guess that's how I would think about that. And for people who are more interested in this topic and want to learn more about it, what are some kind of simple steps that they can take right now? And then what are some bigger organizations or projects that they could become involved in in the future? So, so the, the steps right off the bat, you know, desflurane really doesn't need to be used. I mean, I... I say that fairly cautiously because I know there's people who love it, but in my personal clinical practice, I've used it basically never in the last four years. I've done some pretty difficult cases. And I know that where I trained, there were two vaporizers and who knew where they were in the 70 or so ORs. You know, so I know that you can do complicated cases without desflurane and you can get pretty good outcomes without desflurane. That's step one. The next step is the nitrous oxide. There's some wonderful research. It's um, been it's been published by Dr. Forbes McGain from Australia, and it's been followed up in spades by Dr. Brian Cheesebrough of Providence in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. That shows that nitrous oxide tanks are just leaking. Like it's not like they they've looked at how much they're using and then compare that to how much they're purchasing, and they're purchasing like ten times as much as they're using. And when they go and they try to find the leaks. They find the leaks and they realize that there's not one leak or two leaks. There's like many leaks throughout their entire system. And they've realized that simply by like removing these tanks and relying upon the backup system that's in, inherent to all of our anesthesia machines, you know, with the e-cylinders, they've reduced their, their, their footprint of nitrous oxide, you know, again, by the same amount, by tenfold, because they weren't actually using what they were buying. It was just literally going up into the atmosphere. So from both a pollution standpoint and a, a social cost of that pollution, plus an actual financial cost, you know, there's an opportunity to save. So those are two things right off the bat. The desflurane and using the nitrous oxide are you know, things that any clinician can do. Getting rid of, rid of nitrous oxide throughout the hospital system, there's literature to support that. There's a lot of evidence that's happening. Um, Especially if you like have any influence in building design, I would recommend not building in the manifold and relying just on the e cylinders if you need it. There's, you know, we talked about doing the total IV anesthesia. That's something that you can do right away. I, I also always want to bring. I think anesthesiologists, anesthesia providers, do best when they're outside of the OR. I love, I love us in the OR, but I like us working outside of the OR, and I think we have the opportunity to really like mobilize the entire health system to be more sustainable. So don't just do this in your practice, like let people know that this is important to you. And if this is important to you, if you know, if you if you appreciate the connection between patient health, global health and environmental health, you know, which which really is pretty basic to all life, then get out there and let your administrators know that it's important for you to work in a system that's sustainable, that thinks about sustainability, that's working to be more efficient. 
and and let the administrators know and let the vendors know that generally speaking, once you make a small investment, these are decisions that end up being cost saving in the long run. Are you an advocate for sustainable healthcare at your institution? Let us know by tagging us on Twitter using the hashtag APSF podcast. And join us once again next week as we continue the conversation with Myra McBride for part three of our series on sustainable healthcare as the next anesthesia patient safety movement. If you have any questions or comments from today's show, please email us at podcast at APSF.org. Please keep in mind that the information in this show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical or legal advice. We hope that you will visit APSF.org for detailed information and check out the show notes for links to all the topics we discussed today. We are over halfway through the new year, and we would love to connect with you on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn in 2022. So go ahead and tag us in a patient safety-related tweet or like our next post on Instagram, like us on Facebook, or connect with us on LinkedIn. We can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, stay vigilant so that no one shall be harmed by anesthesia care.